Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer business and other fields that we find interesting. I'm here in the taproom with my co-host, Maria Cabre. What's going on, Maria? Hey, John. What's going on? Not much. Who's our first guest this week? Our first guest left a promising career in engineering to help boost his home state's nascent craft beer scene. He is the founder, brewmaster, and president of Louisiana's Parish Brewing Company, whose beers have garnered national attention and won numerous awards, including a number four best beer in 2020 from wine enthusiasts for Ghost in the Machine. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Andrew Godley. Thank you for joining us this morning. How are you doing, brother? Good. Really great to talk to you. Yeah, it's been a minute, man. It's, uh, it's good to see your, uh, your face and actually uh, be able to speak with you, man. It's, uh, it's been a minute. So before we get started, so I don't get any angry tweets, what is the local pronunciation of Louisiana? Louisiana. Yeah, like I said. <laughs> you got to be from the South to say it, though, right? Do people pronounce it differently? Of course they do. I don't, I don't know. Did, did I say it in a remarkable way? Louisiana. I said Louisiana. Yeah. What, what is the proper pronunciation of the town and the parish that Parish Bruin is in. Oh, that's a trickier one. There we go. Lafayette. 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 Not Lafayette. Lafayette. No, no you'd think you'd put a little French accent on it, but it's Lafayette. And, um, and, and the other one, the big city in, in Louisiana, how, how do you say it? Oh, boy. Now, now do we want to go? Well, I mean, I can. Nolens. It's Nolens. Or you go New Orleans for like the more like. You're, Kansas. You're both, you're both wrong. You're both just uh, right off. Uh-oh. What is but it? You ready? Yeah. You ready? Yeah. New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. Okay. New Orleans. New Orleans. All right. It just sort of, it just flows together. New Orleans. Kind of rolls off the tongue there. <laughs> right. So, so actually, you are native South African. What brought your family to New Orleans and Baton Rouge? Yeah, my dad was um, my dad was a CPA in South Africa, and he got to uh, work with several big accounting firms around the world, and traveled, you know, into Europe and into the United States. And um, he just had a, an opportunity in uh, in um, uh, New Orleans to to take a job at a big firm there. And at the time, uh, you know, this was before. Um, uh, before South Africa resolved a lot of its social problems and apartheid was still happening. And there was, um, just a lot of strife and, and, and in general, um, stresses on society. And, and my parents wanted to, uh, take their children to a country that was, um, just generally safer and seemed like it might provide, uh, more economic opportunities. There was strong sanctions put on South Africa, I believe around that time. And, uh, that, that's basically why they left and came to the United States. Nice. So, actually, you earned a chemical engineering degree from LSU and then moved to Pittsburgh for an engineering job. You noticed something when you went out to restaurants and bars that you hadn't seen in Louisiana. What was that exactly? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I was a, a C student in college, so I couldn't get an engineering job in, in Louisiana like everybody else. There's a... There's a bunch of uh, chemical plants here in Louisiana. I'm sure most people know that. There's tons of refineries up yep. and down the Mississippi River. Yep. Even right next door in Houston, there's uh, you know Texas. The, the the refining and petrochemical industry, the chemical engineering field is very available and strong down here. But I, I just didn't make good grades, so I had to take a, a what ended up being a great job in Pittsburgh. I worked for a Fortune 500 company up there called Alcoa the world's yep. largest aluminum manufacturer. Okay. And uh, just that's how I started my journey. And uh, one of the cool things about that was uh, discovering all of the beer. And I think that's what you're getting at was all the beer that was uh, made in Pennsylvania. And it's not just craft beer like we know today, modern craft beer. It was 
all kinds of beer. I mean, uh, Yingling, obviously, everyone's familiar with Yingling just as a big brand. And that was something that, you know, stood out up there being made in Pennsylvania. But they had a lot of small breweries, too, and, and medium-sized breweries. They even had a really interesting brand there called Iron City, which is a, a light, it's a light beer, right? It's a lot like your big, big beers, but it's made in, uh, in, in Pittsburgh and the people there really love it, embrace it. Can you explain to him why you're laughing? <laughs> well, I went to college in Pittsburgh. Okay. I played, I, fo- I, play, I played football at Robert Morris. Oh, so, wow. so for keggers and everything, the options were either beast ice or iron city. You so were icy light, icy light, yeah. But Iron City was like a mainstay, so I'm very, very familiar <laughs> with Iron City, and that beer is entrenched in that city. That's like do or die, you know, eat, breathe, you know, sleep. Iron City beer. So I know exactly where you're coming from on that one. Yeah, it's pretty cool to go up to a, a to to see a new culture, a new beer culture, I guess, for right. the first time, and see how people think about beer brands and beer products and how they embrace locally made stuff. And uh, that was just a light bulb moment for me. I mean, th- there were probably 10 or 12 craft breweries in Pittsburgh at that time. Uh, I-, I can't really remember the exact ones, but there was a few that I was visiting one, you know, made out of a, a, an old church. I think they still exist. Church brewing company, you know, church, and, church brew works. Absolutely. Yeah. That place was uh, awesome. And, and the, there was just a lot of, it, it was a, a light bulb moment, you know, that when I came back to Louisiana, uh, I, so I was in Pittsburgh from 2002 until 2005. Oh, you and when were, I moved back, back were, to Louisiana in 2005, nice. I, I just realized what was missing here. It was, it just was so obvious to me. There was a giant void of that kind of business in Louisiana. So you were there right after, like I left around 2000. 2001 so you were there right after after i was there but yeah i mean that that whole i could see because especially that's kind of where i got entrenched into it too you know kind of in that area because of the heavy beer craft beer scene up there and back in miami there was nothing either you know we Mm -hmm. had nothing down here so uh, went along the lines because unlike a lot of brewers we talked to you took up home brewing after you had the idea of opening the brewery as to opposed to like somebody like myself who just home brewed and then decided to open a business. Can you describe those early days when you started to teach yourself how to brew beer? Yeah. Um, I, I always think it's kind of romantic when, you know, brewers like to tell the story about how they hone their skills at, you know, giving their beers to their neighbors and family and friends and, and just decided it was a good idea to, to pursue it. And uh, I, I definitely didn't do that. We were uh, or I, I really just wanted to start a successful business and, um, I didn't know how to brew at the time, but I, I looked at it as something that I, if anybody could do it, I could do it because of my, my education and, and, uh, working, working as an engineer, the kind of work I was doing was basically managing a, uh, a production facility. I was managing the, you know, the ins and the outs, the people, the, the manufacturing of a chemical product. And, that's what beer is, right? I mean, beer is making beer is manufacturing a product, a chemical product. It just happens to be way more delicious (laughs) than a lot of the chemical products that, that most chemical engineers are making. You know, I, 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 I'll, I'll be honest. I I don't know what your background was before you got into beer, um, your education, but you know about manufacturing uh, that beer enough to call yourself a, a chemical engineer. I mean, you are an engineer. You're a beer engineer, you know? Well, kind of like your father, I was a CPA. Okay. I did it for 15 years. But he my, was a boring engineer. Right, I was a boring engineer. But my, <laughs> my, my side hustle and my side love was actually cooking, and I turned to really diving into reading and getting into home brewing. So my engineering came on later on after my my CPA work, but it definitely, it's, I had also garnered some of that production from working in my father's business, which is a marine business and service industry and just production of manufacturing of boats and stuff like that. So it all kind of goes hand in hand running these production manufacturing facilities. What would you say helped you from those LSU science classes with your brewing? Oh man. Um, I mean, a 
That's a great question because, I, you know, when it comes to entrepreneurship, I think most people, when they head out into a direction to start some kind of a business, they really don't know much about it. And, and in general, most of those, um, most of the things that were important in, in making beer, I, I didn't learn in school. Right. Uh, there, was, right. there is no school for the kinds of things that we do. Um, and I think that's probably true for a lot of successful entrepreneurial ventures. There's no school for it. You got to figure it out and make it work. But I will say that my, um, my chemical engineering background certainly uh, gave me a lot of good fundamental, um, fundamental uh, tenets, I suppose. Uh, and I, I have an MBA also. Oh. I got an MBA while I, before I started the brewery. Um, I was, uh, I, you know, sick and tired of working for the man. I wanted to, <laughs> to, to, to make more money. I wanted to, you know, be the, the, the king of my own castle, I guess. I wanted to sort of forge my own path and be less, you know, um, beholden to what others determined my fate would be. Correct. And yep. uh, I, I thought an MBA might be the best way to sort of break out of the traditional chemical engineering uh, path that I was on. And uh, it was interesting that I didn't learn everything I needed in, in that educational uh, realm. It was, but I did learn a bunch of very important lessons. It's a lot of them I could make like bumper stickers out of today, <laughs> looking back on it, you know? Right. One, one of my favorite lessons is um, there was a, it, there was a teacher who was trying, it was a finance guy and he was trying to teach us about this. He was telling us stories about this, uh, this crazy entrepreneur that used to come into his bank he was, he worked at a bank and he was in charge of loaning money out. And, uh, this guy used to drive a pink Cadillac and he was, you know, telling a very colorful story in order to elaborate on how crazy this guy was. And, uh, the lesson that I took from it was essentially that you don't have to be very smart to be successful in business. It's all about how hard you hustle, yep. you know? So that it, it, you know, that there was things that I learned in school that weren't necessarily intended to teach me what I learned, but you know, you pick up little things along the way that, you know, create the, 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 gu- the guardrails of what, what's successful, you know? Yeah. I'm not knocking the education system because I have my master's in accounting and, you know, my, my regular four year in business management do so, you know, a lot of people come to me and are like, well, you have a background in accounting. That should be great for running a business. But I don't think that applies to every business. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Especially like in the brewing industry. I think more of my knocks came from actually watching my father and working with my father in his business, kind of that hands-on, because he, he had no college education, and he dove in, and he's now 42 years in the business as an entrepreneur. And it's really that kind of hands-on jumping in that is more of a life experience than, than some things that they can teach you in school. So I absolutely agree with that. You know what I mean? Um, yep. So 11 years ago, I know, it, trust me, it wasn't easy to open a brewery. And you originally looked at Lafayette, but weren't feeling the love from regulators. Why did you choose Brassard at that point? And can you kind of describe Brassard to us? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a small place. We're a suburb of Lafayette, Louisiana, which is also not a very big place. Um, you know, I think the po- the population of this area is probably around 140, 150,000 people in the general, uh, Lafayette, Louisiana area. We call it Acadiana. It's really Cajun country. Oh boy. Uh, this is, this is where people still, you know, speak Cajun French. Uh, in fact, this afternoon I'm going to a crawfish boil, like for real. Send, send uh, some down, send some down, please. <laughs> if you come visit in the spring, that's what we'll do. All right. Sure. All right. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, th- this is, this is truly Cajun country. I mean, the kids, you can send your kids to public school here and have them l- be taught hundred percent in French. Ooh. Okay. You know, so that just, just to kind of put it in perspective, what this place is like, and they're very, we're very passionate about, um, that, that culture and, and hanging on to that culture here. Um, I'm sure there's some analogs to the, you know, maybe the Cuban culture in Miami and, and some other places around the U S where there's a strong, um, history there from from a, a, g- a group of people that that maybe come from somewhere else or a little different in one way or another and uh, from the rest of America and th- we have that here for sure and uh, you know it influenced what kind of beers we wanted to make too because um, 
uh, I guess back when we were very, when I was just starting the brewery, I didn't really know what kinds of products would work. I didn't know a lot about the beer industry. I didn't know a lot of, I thought I knew I could see what was working for some other people, but um, I was very lucky in that the first product I, I wanted to put out was um, cane break. Right. And cane break is a wheat beer brewed with sugarcane syrup and sugarcane is the predominant crop here in Cajun country in Acadiana. And if you drive around, it's it's uh, every field you see is the sugarcane field, big, tall, you know, green, beautiful sugarcane uh, plants uh, for miles and miles. And it just seemed like a no brainer. And that's part of the culture here is farming. And, uh, you know, people really embraced it. The idea of a beer made with something that's just such a big part of the uh, the local culture uh, really worked well. Was, um, I, was it hard to, to find staff back then to actually to staff a craft brewery when there really wasn't that many around. Yeah, back then? definitely. Definitely. But I, I wouldn't say it was hard because, uh, I, you might back me up on this. I don't think that, you know, the kind of people you need in a business, it does education and, you know, technical specific education on, on that craft is not really the most important thing. I think the most important thing in a good team is uh, work ethic, attitude, uh, people yeah. that are willing to improve themselves and grow uh, and passionate about what they're working on. Right. And that's uh, that's been a priority in the people that we've hired uh, or that I've hired, and that has uh, worked out well, I think. There was really nobody here that's uh, – to this day, I mean, I have 34 employees. One of them has worked for another brewery before. Yeah, Only I mean, one. I think up until about five years in – Everybody that had worked here, obviously, besides not not including bartenders or whatever, but anybody in the back in the production area was taught by myself or through Maria, who I taught. So nobody really came in with an education about brewing or anything about how to run any of the equipment in the back. That's right. It was all taught by me or, or Maria, and it wasn't up until probably in the last two years or so that we brought in people, three years, that we brought in people that had some kind of background but really no education. It was just experience in the work field. Mm. So, so I can absolutely agree with that. I think that's, that's important to note also that that's where a lot of the best innovations come from is people that, that don't have a preconceived notion about the way things should be. What kinds of products should we be making? How should we be making these products? How do we sell these products? Right. You know, you bring in people and you, you create this all from scratch uh, without any prior experiences, I think that just gives you such an advantage in the innovation side where you, you don't have any uh, blinders that are preventing you from seeing, you know, really far off, you know, uh, to, to the side over there where everybody else is afraid to venture. You're, you're not afraid to look over there and, and go, go to someplace new. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So, so actually from, from Cane Break, which was an awesome beer out the gate, you then came up with Ghost in the Machine, double IPA, which has surpassed Cane Break as your top seller. Did you come up with these recipes? Yeah, uh, well, Cane Break for sure. Uh, Ghost in the Machine is a is a more interesting story than Cane Break. Um, you know, this is now approaching the point where we have a few employees here. I got a few talented folks. Ryan's our head brewer now, and you know he's he, he's the kind of guy that's testing for his master cicerone. Uh, which is like the sommelier equivalent for beer. And uh, I think there's only 10 or so or less master Cicerones in the, in the world. And he's, you know, testing for that right now. Wow. Uh, And he's probably likely to get it. You know, he's, he's that, that smart and that passionate about, you know, the technical side of beer and uh, very lucky to have someone like that on the team, you know, and, and we've got people like Kevin and others that are here that are, uh, you know, involved in various parts of our business that contribute in some way. So when we make a recipe now, like Ghost in the Machine, uh, even though that was, I guess, eight years ago when we made that, it was truly a collaborative effort. Um, and the story behind Ghost is interesting in that we cane break was so popular, our wheat beer was so popular that we couldn't make an IPA. We couldn't produce any other beers. The brewery was literally full with cane break. Wow. So everybody else is making IPAs and they're all trying to clone. They're selling beers that are trying to clone Sierra Nevada and stone and all the popular beers at that time. 
And we were free to experiment. We were just doing test after test after test in the brewery, trying all kinds of different things. And I, I don't know if you remember it, it, at the time when uh, pepper beers were kind of popular. Remember the hot pepper yes, beers? Yes, yes. Billy's yep. Chili's and yep. Ghost Face Pilla. And there were these <laughs> beers that they, they were like hot sauce. It was sort of an, uh, an experience where it's like an I dare you to drink it. Yep. You know, yep. hey, John, you tried this this hot beer. I dare you to drink it, right? <laughs> right. And uh, that was the experience with those. And we had an idea. What if we made a beer that was like an I dare you to drink it hoppy beer? It was so hoppy, it, was, it would be an experience to try and tolerate it. You know, that's what we were thinking. And so we went ahead and just started putting in more hops than we had ever heard of going into a beer. And we discovered a few things. Um Number one, that lots of hops are actually really, really delicious when you do it the right way. Uh, and that, that's essentially how, how Ghost in the Machine was born, was an, an attempt to try and put record amounts of hops in a beer. Wow. And it ended up being a big innovation because there were no hazy IPAs. Nope. And for, you know, for the audience that doesn't know what makes a hazy IPA, there's a few elements, but one of the big elements is tons of hops, you know, just the sheer volume of hops that goes into a beer uh, helps create the haze. There's some other things that help it stay around and and exist, but um, that we were realizing back then that the haze was good and the haze made beers delicious and uh, there were no hazy IPAs that you could find in the stores. There were not a lot being made in the United States at all. To my knowledge, the only ones that were made were coming out of New England at that time. Yep. We were getting cans of Heavy Topper down. You know, pe- friends and, and, and customers would bring in some of those beers from, from Vermont and Massachusetts down for us to try. I think this was in like 2013, 2014 maybe. Yep. And uh, we realized that, that the hazy thing was what we wanted to be making. And, and so we really committed to that at, that at that point. It ended up being probably one of the best decisions we've ever made because that, that really helped our business take off. That's awesome. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield, and we are talking to Andrew Godley of Parish Brewing. So I have a question. So we all just went through this pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic, after, you know, and it hits you guys after being open for about a decade. And I actually read that Parrish didn't have to furlough or lay off any of its 30 employees because of a contract with the state to make hand sanitizer, which was used at, you know, polling places across Louisiana on election day. How did that contract come about with y'all? Uh, that's a cool story. I'm glad you found that. Um, so yeah, super proud that we, and I was very nervous at the time, but I'm very proud to say that we didn't lay off any employees at all, even our taproom staff. Um, you know, we, we have uh, four full-time people in our taproom and uh, didn't, didn't have to cut anybody's hours or anything like that. Um, uh, part, part of the reason was, was being able to make hand sanitizer for the state of Louisiana. Uh, we actually uh, lucked into that. I guess there was some hustle to, to execute it, but we lucked into the opportunity. They actually called us. Uh, and the way that they, the reason why they called us was because, uh, and and I guess this really is a pretty important lesson in, in entrepreneurship about what luck really is. It's, you know, you've heard the saying luck is where preparation meets opportunity. I think we were prepared for the opportunity. And what happened was, uh, we made 16 ounce bottles of hand sanitizer. We made, uh, uh, you know, a few gallons to sell in our tap room. A lot of people were doing it. A lot of breweries and, and, and distilleries and other people were making hand sanitizer just to, to do something at that time. It seemed like the right thing to do. There was a need for it. Um, it helped keep our employees busy. So we, we made a small amount of hand sanitizer, but we used 16 ounce bottles. I don't know why we use 16 ounce bottles, plastic bottles, but it's just the size that we picked, you know, from the packaging website that we buy stuff from and uh, the state of Louisiana saw that there was a, 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 a government office there that's uh, essentially like FEMA. They're an emergency management office. Right. And they, they were looking for 16 ounce bottles of san- hand sanitizer for, for some reason, specifically 16 ounce to go in all of the voting booths across Louisiana for the November election. And they called me and said, can you make more of these? We've got a, We need a bid for 16 ounce bottles of hand sanitizer and nobody can provide these. And 
Um, I went back to the packaging company and tried to find more 16 ounce bottles. And at that point realized that there was a complete shortage on 16 ounce bottles. You couldn't find them anywhere. Um, ended up finding a tiny little company here in Louisiana after a few days of making lots of calls and trying to hustle up more 16 ounce bottles. And, and by more, I mean, hundreds of thousands of bottles, right, you know, right. we went from making about 200 initially when they called us to needing to fulfill this bid about 600,000 bottles. Whoa. And uh, this tiny company in, in uh, outside of Lafayette, very close to where we uh, exist here. Uh, they actually make the, the plastic, the green plastic caps that go on Tabasco. Uh-huh. That's their main business, but they also, they also can make some custom bottles. They are plastic injection molding company. Okay. And I went to them and asked if they could make me 600,000 bottles, plastic bottles. They make little <laughs> vinegar bottles. Right. And um, that was part of the putting the big puzzle together. And after we had those uh, difficult to find pieces, um, we embarked upon a journey of bot- hand bottling almost 600,000 bottles of Holy 16 ounce hand sanitizer, buying tons of alcohol in totes, you know, right. doing it all. And uh, the, the local hardware store next to us, we, we bought them out of gloves because we would wear <laughs> out the gloves from hand, uh, hand tightening, uh, That's hand tightening awesome, the bottles. Uh, it took us about a month to do it all. Wow. You know, but that was, that was what the staff did for, uh, uh, or it was about half of our staff committed to that um, for, for the first month of the pandemic. Wow. That's amazing. That is amazing. So 11 years down the road now, what's next for Parish Bruin? Oh, man, that's a great question. So you guys are probably asking the same questions internally over there yep. at Wakefield. You know, it's, yep. uh, and a lot of breweries are doing the same things. Um, we've got a very good business. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't have partners. You know, I'm right. the owner. I don't have debt. Um, the um, uh, We have a lot of flexibility. You know, a lot, right. of, a lot of breweries – and, and companies in general uh, leverage a lot. They, they put themselves into a, a path that they can't deviate from. Yep. Uh, whether it's how big they need to be or what type of business model they have. And we're pretty fortunate in that we're very flexible and we're, we're constantly looking at every month as a set of crossroads, you know, which path do we want, we want to take. And, right. but in, in general, I think the long-term vision is, um, is innovation in terms of how we sell and I think that is mostly revolving around direct to consumer. And uh, that's, I believe, the future of beer. I think the, especially high-end beer. For, for beer that's cheaper, that's not going to be a big business model because it doesn't make sense economically to ship beer like that. But right. for high-end beers, you know, these very expensive to produce beers, there's enough margin in there to um, really uh, get beer at a cheaper price to consumers all over the country than using traditional um, stores and, and delivery methods. Right. So I, I think that's that's the future. I mean, it costs us $25 to ship a case of beer to somebody in, you know, the Northeast, let's say, from Louisiana. And uh, if we were to utilize a, whole, a traditional wholesaler and, you know, grocery store. Your margins uh, are way that, down it would be yeah. the margins would be much lower cost a lot more than 25 bucks. Yep. You know, the, the margin that those guys take. Yep. So I think that's the future. That's where we're focused. Nice, man. Well, hopefully we get to see you again here soon, brother. I mean, uh, we got wake fest. Am I only going to be seeing Matt? Or are you going to make a venture down this mm-hmm. time? That's I, was what actually, talking about. I was actually emailing Matt about this, that this morning. We're going to, uh, it's either going to be me and Matt or Matt and one of our other brewers. We like to try and spread around the travel and the fun things as right. well with, with uh, different people, but it's been a while since I've been to South Florida a yep. couple of years. So I, I, I'd, I'd like to come. Well, come on down, man. We'll be happy to, uh, happy to have you. If for sure. not, we need to go to one of these. I know. No, I got to get out there. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I've never been out to, uh, uh, well, you'll be for- perfect. You speak French. Yeah. It's perfect. It may not be uh, Cajun French. It's but. not Cajun French <laughs> for sure. But if the culture is alive down there, yeah. I'll fit in. That's perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, brother. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, great to catch up with you guys. Hope to see you soon, man. Thank you. Cheers. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guest is an award-winning journalist covering the beer industry. He's the author of several books, including Drink Beer, Think Beer, Getting to the Bottom of Every Pint, 
and the American Craft Beer Cookbook. He is the co-host of Steal This Beer, a podcast. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Wine Enthusiast, and more. He has lectured on the culture and history of beer and judged beer competitions around the world. Welcome to the Beer Hour, John Hall. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you, sir. It's uh, it's an honor to be here on your satellite radio program. <laughs> like it's it, it's it's weird. I can get your your show in my car. Yes. Which, you know, if I want to get my shows on on the car, I have to actually plug my phone in and and go through a website. So you're you're like a real deal professional <laughs> radio guy. So so let me ask you. I know this is your show, and you have questions you want to ask me, but I'm fascinated by this. Do you get to hang out in the employee lounge with like downtown Julie Brown and the guys from Rock the Bells Radio? We uh, wish. How, I, I wish. Like, I does, wish. Does Alan Hunter come to your house and I try to you dude, know like sell that would insurance be, or something? Honestly, like that would be amazing if I got to see Alan. Hunter. I mean, I grew up going through the 80s and watching yeah. MTV, like having all those VJs. I mean, if I could actually meet those guys, it would be amazing. Uh, no, not yet. Not yet. Okay. I mean, it's, I mean uh, Demos over on the spectrum. He does art. He can hang some of his stuff in your in, in your brewery walls. I, agree. I mean, there's there's synergies that that exist here. That is that is very, you know? very true. Yeah. So, so let me ask you. <laughs> i am the worst kind of guest on all of these shows because i just you know uh, well you're a writer you, i'm you, not used you, to sitting I know. in this chair yeah uh, how old were you when you realized that you had a talent for writing <laughs> no seriously you know I, I i'm 42 now i don't right. know if i've realized the talent um i do remember though in in, in all fairness in fifth grade uh, at my school, there was uh, the student newspaper, which was done on photocopy paper, uh, and it was called uh, The Scoop, Okay, uh, which, you know, very clever. And the fifth grade teacher, <laughs> uh, Jane Larkin, uh, okay. encouraged me to write an article. Really? And I don't remember what it was, and I've long since lost my only copy uh, of, of the Xerox uh, uh, Scoop, but that was my very first interaction with writing and in journalism. And I enjoyed the act of asking questions and, right. you know, writing is, is secondary to, I, I feel like I've always been a reporter more than a writer. I enjoy the act of, of asking the questions and hearing the answers as opposed to actually putting in the work of writing sentences and paragraphs and, and, and full pages. Nice. So going from that to what you're most involved with now, when did you realize or have your first exposure to craft beer? And was there a specific beer that you drank that just kind of clicked and, and turned the lights on? Yeah. So th there's two things um, that happened. So uh, on my 21st birthday, uh, legally, um, there's a <laughs> right. brew pub, there's a brew pub in my college town. Um, there's a brew pub in South Orange, New Jersey called Gaslight. And for whatever reason, I had gotten it in my head that I wanted to have proper beers um, and not just, you know, the, the, the normal stuff that we've been having, uh, you know, PBR and, 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 and all of that. Um, so I went down to this local uh, brewery, uh, this brew pub, and I, when they opened on my 21st by myself uh, to have a quiet pint and the bartender guy named Jeff Levine uh, poured me an IPA and I choked it down. Um, like really? I could not, I, I, well, you know, 21, <laughs> of course. you know, this early 2000s, like, right. you know, I didn't have a ton of experience with hops. Right. Um, you know, and, and so I, you know, ordered another one against my better, uh, judgment. Um, but Jeff was actually a really good, uh, uh, Sherpa on that journey and sort of started to explain, um, pine and grapefruit and all these other flavors just beyond the overwhelming soul crushing bitterness of this American West coast IPA. Um, and so, you know, it was that explanation early on that was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, this is something that is different from the Bud Lights that are out there in the world. Right. And there's some cool ingredients that can be used for it. And there's some flavors to it. Yep. And that sort of helped launch where I was where I was going. And then, you know, beers like Red Hook ESB back yep. in the day, yes. like that was a really revelatory beer for me. Um, Cascazilla from Ithaca Brewing Company. That yep. was one of Chief's, uh, uh, Jeff O'Neill's early recipes. Yep. That beer just blew my mind with what hops could be in a beer. And it's been off to the races since. I would think that writing about wine and beer is not the easiest of endeavors. I mean, you've garnered numerous awards and accolades in your career. 
I mean, uh, yeah. the truth, but what lessons, yeah. I mean, what lessons have you learned as a writer over the years, especially in terms of writing about a topic that can be somewhat complicated? I always want to consult with the experts. I always want to talk with people who know more than I do. And I never, I, I, I chafe at the word when I've been introduced before and I really hate it. Like, like, Oh, beer expert, John Hall. It's like, no, like, I don't, I don't know nearly as much as I should about this because I'm still learning. You know, I don't have a master's in brewing. I don't have uh, you know, I'm not spending time on the brew deck or, you know, in boardrooms or anything else like that. I'm talking to the people who are, um, but I think that, you know, really the hardest thing um, is having ultimately faith in what I'm writing, because if you're writing about flavors, right, if I'm doing blind reviews for Wine Enthusiast magazine, right, um, I have to have confidence in my palate and in myself that I know what I'm tasting. And then if I'm scoring these beers to be able to stand by it afterwards. And that's a really difficult thing because there's going to be people who read that afterwards. And there are who take to the internet and, you know, call me all sorts of names and <laughs> yes. informed and things like that. You're no stranger to, to, to catch. Oh yes, type of absolutely. Stuff as well. <laughs> you know, but you have to have confidence in the work that you're doing and stand by it because if you don't, then the integrity of the work is gone. And I so agree. anything that I, that I put out there with a byline, you know, or even without a byline, I want to make sure that it is as accurate as I know it to be from reliable sources at the end of the day, because that that's it. And not just pontificating, you know, I don't write a lot of opinion pieces or a lot of, you know, well, I think dot, 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 because ultimately <laughs> people don't care what I think, you know, right. I, I'm, I'm here to be a vessel for you know, the really smart people in and around there. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, it's, especially nowadays with social media and the way the internet has gone when putting something out there your work or whatever it is if you do not stand behind it strongly enough you will get pummeled you know you have to stand up for what you believe in 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 the work that you're putting out there i mean speaking about the works you have yeah. authored or co-authored five soon to be six books all but yeah. one are about beer the first one was the American Craft Beer Book, 150, yep. 155 Recipes from Your Favorite Brew Pubs and Breweries. How, yeah. how did that project come about, and what do you remember about writing that first book? I, I sort of just BSed my way into that book. Um, <laughs> okay. I had reached out to the to the publisher. Um, it's, story, it's Story Publishing. Uh, they did Randy Mosher's book, Tasting Beer, which is an excellent book that everybody who uh, loves beer should have multiple copies of and read multiple copies of. Yeah, I do. Yeah, five, I, yeah. I love Randy Moser and I love his other book, Brewing with Unspecific Ingredients. It's more of like a historical book on beers that used to be brewed back in the day using yeah. different like he had a whole list of fruits and grains and stuff like that. I mean, it, it was really one of my go to's when I was home brewing and even in the early stages of starting the brewery. Yeah, I have it somewhere on the sh on the shelves behind me. I just can't find it at the moment. But yeah, so I reached out to them because I had a, an idea for a different beer book, and the editor came back and said, "That's probably a nice idea," which was a polite way of saying no thanks. And uh, but they said, "What about a beer and food book?" And so I started thinking about it, and I realized that in traveling around and talking with so many brewers, because um, again, when you think about where beer was in like 2010. Uh, when I first started that project or thereabouts when I started that project, it was still a lot of brew pubs. The whole idea of the taproom model hadn't really taken off in the way that it, it it's so prevalent today, you know, and there's maybe what 1200 breweries in the, in the, in the country, as opposed to, you know, the 9,000 plus right. that, that there are now the, the growth over the last decade has just been phenomenal, but there's been a shift where it used to be, if you were going to a brewery, they had to have good food because the beer, the craft beer, the microbrew, whatever, was a hard sell to people who drank, you know, Bud Miller Coors, that kind of thing. Right. So if you had a really good burger and then you could sell them an IPA or their brown ale or whatever, you know, the beer was almost secondary uh, in some of these places because that's just the necessity of, of, of the way that the industry was working by and large. So I, I wanted to find ways of communicating through a cookbook um, not necessarily cooking with beer because that's been done before. Right. And cooking with beer is such a weird thing to talk about. Like it's like, okay, we're going to pour a can of chili into a stout or something like that. And it's delicious and it adds to it. But the real skill, I, I think, are the people who can pair 
what's in the glass with what's on the plate really well um, because it then showcases a chef's intent, but it's also showcasing a brewer's intent. Um, so you're getting it from both angles. So that's what that book was, uh, was really trying to pair good beer with good food and explain why the different flavors worked. And you know, it's been out for, gosh, almost a decade now. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's still kicking around. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. And this new book that's coming out is uh, the, the craft brewery cookbook is sort of a continuation of that different publisher. Um, but again, it's sort of updating beer and food pairings, which, which that book is dropping on May 10th, by the way, May so, 10th. Yes. And uh, can you describe that a little bit more for our listeners so that they know it's coming out May 10th and what they can uh, be expecting from this book? Uh, the Craft Brewery Cookbook comes out on May 10th from Princeton Architectural Press. It's available for pre-order now wherever books are sold. Um, and again, it, it comes down to trying to find great pairings of anything from you know, breakfast and appetizers to sandwiches to, to dinners and desserts um, with styles of beer that are familiar on taps and on shelves these days. And so when the, you know, craft, when the American Craft Beer Cookbook came out 10 years ago, um, we weren't talking about hazy IPA. No. We weren't talking about, you know, fruited sours or Florida vice as uh, <laughs> right. you, you know, coined for a hot minute back in the day. Right. Um, but we weren't having those conversations uh, in, 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 in the larger sense back then. Um, so this book talks about them and it talks about, you know, pastry stouts and all of these other things that are out there and culinary beers that exist where beers now have food items in them to you know mimic something else and so uh it, it it was a fun exercise to talk with breweries and uh and and, and brew pubs ar- around the country um about their approach to pairing beer and food and it shows up in the pages um and i will point out since this is your show um that i asked you to be in the book several <laughs> times and you can't and, ask him. You have to ask me. No, you have to ask me, and then I, I harass that, him. That I, knew, I knew this was coming. That the, was my mistake. <laughs> I know it was absolutely. It was no. absolutely my mistake. No, no. I love that. I think I got an email from you, John, where it was like five weeks after I sent it off to the printer and you're like, Hey, is this too late? Oh my like, God. Yeah, man. I've been bothering you for like 18 months on this. But, <laughs> um, so the third edition. Uh, you can write the forward. Let's do and it. We'll, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield, and we're speaking to our very good friend John Hall. So you actually, <laughs> you actually might be the best person on the planet to ask this question. Okay, where do you see the industry going from here? As I think we're mature, does it mature anymore? Where do you see it going as a whole? I, I think it's diversification. I think what the last couple of years have shown us with the emergence of new categories and even the shifting definitions of what craft is or, you know, what, what beverage is, you can't just be, I mean, you can, but increasingly, if you look at what the larger companies are doing, and I think that that they're usually a little bit ahead of what smaller places are going to do. They're diversifying their portfolio. If you look at um, like Sierra Nevada, for example, you right. know they have their kombucha company. Um, they were doing that that healthy beer for for a little while. Um, Sufferist, I guess they they, they bought. I, I'm probably butchering the name, but they had sort of this active lifestyle brand that they bought uh, and then discontinued. Um, but you know they they. Back in the day, had you know talked about wine, uh, although they never got into it. Um, there's a hop seltzer that's out there these days that somebody just showed me the other day. Um, you know, they're, they're diversifying their portfolio beyond just the normal beers. Sam Adams is another great example of that, right? I mean, it's not only do they have dogfish head in them right now, but they're doing truly and all of the different truly hard seltzers. They're doing twisted teas and bringing new flavors into that. And they they have this finished long drink that they've been pushing out there. Um, what is it? That's all Sam Adams? Yeah, that's all Boston beer. Holy crap. Okay. Uh, yeah. Kyle, Kyle, actually, um, formerly of Concrete Beach, it's now dogfish here in our backyard yeah, in yeah. Wynwood. Um, he's the one that came up with the truly iced teas. Oh, wow. Which is the only hard seltzer that I'll drink because right. it doesn't taste like absolute uh, doo-doo. Right. Yeah. But these are public, you know, Sam Adams is a publicly traded company, um, you know, and now they're getting into making hard 
Mountain Dew, oh um, which just came out. That's yes. a, that's a Boston beer, Sam Adams thing. Uh, they're talking about they're working with Centauri or or Brown Form. I think it's Centauri um, to start doing um, Co- uh, whiskey based or yeah, yeah. Uh, the hard seltzers with vodka in it. Um, so they're diversifying, and I think that that's where the future has to be for, you know, for, for certain companies uh, of a certain sizes, you can't just be, okay, we're a beer maker anymore. You know, you can get into wine, you can get into RTD cocktails, you can get into coffee. Um, and that's another area where we've seen a lot of breweries, you know, push in, um, you know, there's been coffee roasters associated with breweries for a long time now. Now they're making coffee drinks. Um, you know, they're selling their own beans to just be a beer company, I think is going to be difficult once you hit a certain size yes, and to offer variety to customers who appreciate the good name behind a company um, can, can help grow, uh, right. can help grow a, a, a brand overall. Yeah. It's something that we, we've actually considered or actually working towards opening a, a diversified part of this business that we won't we, discuss we can, here. We right? can but talk if, about yeah, it later, later when but, you're here yeah. in person for yes, Wake yes. Fest. But, but, it but is actually, think- it's actually something that we are doing. But I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, does it feel natural? You know, like, is it like, so for Boston beer, right? They're siloed. Um, you don't hear the Sam Adams people talking about truly, you don't hear the truly people talking about angry orchard or any, it's right. all very siloed, but for smaller companies, you know, like I think of like Maui and what Garrett Marrero is doing out there, you know, they have coffee drinks, you know, they're getting into the hard seltzers. Um, it's under the Maui brand overall, and they're happy to have the synergy between the, the between all of them. Um, and that's because people trust the name. They know the name. Um, and it, it, it really does sort of help. So there needs to be some authenticity if you're going to do multiple products under right. one name, I think. Right. It, just, it, it just helps from a consumer perspective. I, I couldn't agree more. So here's part of the show where we uh, kind of put you on the hot seat. Okay. Um, give me your five desert island beers. My five desert island beers. Uh, I am contractually obligated because of steal this beer uh, to say boat beer from Carton Brewing Company. Uh, that's that. That's number one. It, it was like the first thing in the paperwork uh, that that Augie made me sign. Yes. Um, uh, so boat probably. Uh, let's see. Uh, Schlenkele Hells. Nice. Uh, I would probably do Dogfish Head Ninety. Okay. Uh, and then I'd probably need two Pilsners. So what have I been drinking? I've been drinking a lot of good word out of Georgia, Georgia. out of Georgia. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and he, uh, and, and, and Todd has his die Todd die lager, which I was drinking the other night. I could, I could, I could get behind that for, for a desert Island. Um, and then maybe a, just to, to sort of mix it up a little bit, there's a there's a cool brewery in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, uh, named Bond Place, and they do an English mild named Mui. Really, and I feel like as the sun starts to set on on my desert island, that that could be a nice transition beer before I get into the to the higher ABV. Okay, uh, dogfish at ninety for, for <laughs> the rest course. of the night to oh, send nice. me off to sleep of dreams of rescue ships. <laughs> yeah. Great. Great was answers. That, by the, that, that was five. That was five. That was five. Yeah. That was great. All great answers, by the way. So I, I, I have one last question for you here. Kind mm-hmm. of a debate question. Yeah. Which exit on the New Jersey Turnpike is the Mason Dixon line of the Taylor Ham versus the pork roll debate? Is this a uh, Jersey I'm, question? Yes, it is. This of is course. A very, very Jersey question. Guys, right. Rocco um, is from Jersey, although he reps Philadelphia <laughs> to the death. So this so is why the question. Country. Yeah. It, He's pork roll. So where, which exit is it? It's on the turnpike. Yeah. It's, it's going to be my exit. It's going to be exit 10. Okay. So that is, that, that sort of splits North Jersey, South Jersey. It's before you go over the Driscoll bridge to get down the Jersey shore, although the turnpike's not on the Driscoll, but uh, that's the parkway. But yeah, it's essentially central Middlesex County, uh, which is the, the North South Jersey dividing line. Uh, in my mind, uh, there's people who disagree with that. And What's your wrong. answer, Rocco? Uh, I would agree with that. I'm in pork roll uh, country, right? Um, yeah. And uh, he wrote a book about 
things to eat in New Jersey. That's why. Uh, okay. Could you shout out shout out the book, John? What's the title of it? Uh, it's called Dishing Up New Jersey, yeah. and it's uh, yeah. it's another recipe book. All it's another cookbook. Yeah, uh, all about and that's the great quintessential great New State. Jersey dish. Can you describe a pork yes. roll sandwich to Maria? Uh, sure. So pork roll or Taylor, uh, they're different. Well, so here's the thing. It's the the product itself is pork roll, right? You know, it's not actually ham. Um, but it is, uh, cause ham is a specific cut of pork and this is a combination of things. This is essentially, you know, like a hot dog, uh, of, of, of mixed (laughs) things and spices and and preservatives and, um, you know, runoff from the Raritan river. Um, but it's, um, uh, it's a breakfast meat that you should slice, uh, somewhat thinnish. Uh, you notch the corners. It comes in, in, in circles, comes in logs. So you, you, you cut it, you notch it so it doesn't curl up in the pan. Uh, and it's got a little bit of a, you know, a tangy, bacony, uh, spicy flavor to it. And you mix it uh, with uh, uh, scrambled eggs uh, or a fried egg and uh, and some American cheese. And you put it on a Kaiser roll and oh salt, pepper, ketchup, and, and you're all set for, for breakfast. But there I'm, are different types hmm. of pork roll. And the superior brand Taylor. is the John Taylor Company. Okay. So Taylor Ham is where that comes from. Um, there's other brands that are out there that are that are garbage, but the the, the, the real <laughs> uh, the real fired. one to enjoy is uh, oh yeah, come at me, come at me if, uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're digging case. I lived, uh, because, I lived, because you're wrong, and I'll tell you why. Yeah, that I was lived beautiful. in North Bergen for a year, and I never saw a pork roll. So is this not a North Bergen thing? No, be, uh, no, it's very much. North Bergen thing, but yeah. North Bergen is, and that whole part of Hudson County is it's a lot of pupusas and yep. like a lot of Latin. Yeah. I lived right yeah. off Bergen Line in seventy eighth. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, it's um, it's you could probably have found it, but there's there's better food to 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 eat in the morning there. That has it's some more good authentic. Food. Yeah, yeah, nice. yeah. Well, thank, thank you, thank you very much, John. We appreciate your time. <laughs> and yes, I will. Uh, I will put forward now to write the foreword on on the next cookbook. Oh my god! Part three. <laughs> yes, yes, part in three, three years, three. we're gonna nice. have to remind him in like no, three no, years, John. No. I, I, you know, that that was my fault. I didn't respond. I got buried in things, and uh, you know, I feel bad for not getting listen, back. To, I, listen, you know, I follow your Instagram account where you are everywhere all the time. Oh my god! Oh my so god. you, so I understand why you don't have time yes, to respond yes. to emails. I, I, that person see, has. See, a lot of hey, time on that, their hands. That is another exhibition of, uh, you know, garnering shots fired at, at somebody that, you know, like myself, <laughs> you know, I put a lot of work out there and now it's like, okay, let's, uh, let's see what we can do to try to rattle his cage. But I, I'm actually all good with it. It doesn't really, I, I, I think it's hilarious. I oh, think I think it's, it's hysterical. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it seems like it's in good fun. If I brought yeah. up something that you're in pending litigation about, no, I apologize. No, not at all. But not yeah, at all. Um, <laughs> oh, not it at seems all. like it's in good fun. Yes. It's, uh, you know, you're you're at every collaboration day. I You've know. crossed the Delaware with Washington. Yes. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> you were there. So I understand why you can't answer emails. But yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much, John. I appreciate it, man. And I will Thanks, see pal. you very soon for, uh, for Wakefest. Yeah, I'll see you in a month. Absolutely. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Andrew Godley, John Hall, our co-host, Maria Cabre, our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, Brian O'Connell. Thank you for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. We'd appreciate that very much. We love your feedback. Remember, people, the thirst is real.